0: If you're new with us, I always say, and it's very, very true, not vain platitudes, but very thankful that you're here, thankful that you're joining us online, or you're in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where it happens. Um, so you got to complete it. Sorry, that's my ADD. Um, we have started a series last week that Pastor G started with hashtag bless. How many of you guys actually use hashtags? Yeah, I, mean, I know, you're, you're, you know, it, it's a thing. It's still a thing. I know it goes in and out. Melissa's like, yeah. Uh, but hashtag blessed was, I think, popular you know, several months ago, maybe a year ago, which in our time is like 10 years ago. Um, but for us, the reason why we wanted to call this series that is because we're looking at how Scripture and Jesus specifically defines Blessed. And I like the concept of hashtags because what it does is it brings together all of these thoughts into one thing where you can link them all, almost hyperlink them to something. And what we want you to do through this series is get it so ingrained in you of what it means to be blessed and wanting to be blessed according to the way God defines it because that is the author of life defining life. That we want to help you have that life, but also hashtag and correlate and hyperlink what Jesus means versus maybe what we've heard or what we feel or what culture says, which we're going to talk about a lot today. Uh, Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read through what's called the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the beginning uh, as Jesus is ministering to thousands. And how he intros this sermon, this day of teaching, really says a lot about what his focus is and what he's trying to get us to understand. Let's read it together, and then we will dive into the message. Matthew 5, verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice he starts everything with this idea of blessed because who doesn't want to be blessed? Anybody in here? Because the opposite of blessed is cursed. An empowerment to fail. Where blessed is an empowerment to succeed, to prosper, to flourish. And G did a great job last week to define that word. In the hebrew from the context of scripture from what jesus is talking about and i want to continue to elaborate that now we're only going to be able to go verse by verse this is a six-part series where we're hitting all 12 verses succinctly and intentionally if you uh i can't say everything so if you want more we have amazing teachers and writers in our church through a blog that we have called clcstarter.com. I see Jason over here. He, he writes every once in a while. He teaches, uh, Scott Fiddler. other people will write. And what it is, it's really after the message and the scriptures that we're going on, it's daily devotions for application, for prayer, to help you kind of think through this. So we take it beyond just Sunday and apply it to our life every day. I'm thankful for those guys that do that. We have great teachers. now. I want to double down on what Jesus said and look at scripture and specifically give you a picture because we know pictures paint a thousand words because we have an idea of blessed maybe and we don't always have the accurate idea of blessed, but scripture gives us a picture, a beautiful imagery of what it is. And the prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah seventeen seven through eight, and he says this about blessed. Here's what he says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He starts with what blessing is, and he says, it is related relationally. Blessing is so much more a relational thing than a physical thing or a material thing. And so Jeremiah wants you to understand, man, the blessed kind of life is blessed in your relationships. And I don't know about you, but I know this. I experienced this. We had some Catastrophic relationship things happen over COVID over the past couple of years, which just happens. Things happen, and and some relationships fell apart and didn't work out. And I remember my wife uh, gets mentored by uh, Steve Merle. He's the president of Every Nation, the the group that we're a part of. Deborah Merle um, was talking to my wife. My wife was telling her all her woes and frustrations and this and that and all these kind of things. And Deborah stopped her and said, "Hey Casey, how's your marriage?" And she said, man, our marriage is really going well, a great marriage. She said, how's your kids? She said, you know, my kids are, are great. I mean, you know, they're crazy every once in a while, but you know, they're good kids. We have good kids. They love the Lord. They love the church. And Deborah said, Casey, you're blessed. Because no matter things falling apart, looking around, like the blessing was in relationship. The blessing of flourishing relationship. Now, some of you might say, well, that's not me. Because my, my husband or my wife or my kids are wiling out or whatever it is. So I'm not blessed, I'm cursed. But it is relational, but specifically relational to God. When you place your trust in God. If you've ever had to go on one of those company uh, horrible retreats, right? Where you do a trust fall right i'm sure you did that crystal come on and and they're like okay just fall back and you're like man i don't know if i could trust you you know like where's hr you know you're you're trying to figure out if i should do this because this trust thing is not just physically but it's emotionally like do i put my trust in you and then they catch you hopefully of course you've seen some of those youtube and means it's like oh man i do not want to work for that company but uh We understand putting your trust in, all of yourself. And that's what I said, put your trust in. It's what you lean on. It's what you depend on. But not only that, he doubled down and says, whose trust is the Lord. He is who I'm abiding, who I'm connected to. And then he connects it to a beautiful imagery. Not a company, not money, but to a tree. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. Do you have the picture in your head? and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, this is the picture we typically think of when we think of blessing, make it rain. That's in my, my movie, The Mask, back in Jim Carrey days. Making it rain, like we think of money, we think of material things, but here's the picture I want you to get. Now, this is not in Israel, okay? I think this is Switzerland, actually. But this was my favorite picture I saw that I think of blessed, and the scripture talks blessed, and this is what I want you to picture. You have beautiful river, you have greenery, it's lush, it's beautiful, it's great. Why are you laughing at me? I feel like, okay, good, stop it. My family is right here and they're laughing at me. Okay, good, okay. uh, I don't feel blessed right now, I feel cursed. Sometimes I'd get off stage and somebody would be like, you know, your collar was like weird the whole time. And I'm sure what you said was great, but I was just focused on your collar. And of course, then I'd die a thousand deaths on Monday and go, oh my God. Um, <laughs> blessed, blessed, the river, the greenery, the beauty. And listen, this isn't man-made. This is the creator. And the reason why it's that picture And not someone that just works really hard, makes it happen, pulls himself up by their bootstraps. That's blessed. That has everything in lush. The picture it wants to give you is beauty and creation and specifically a tree. Why is it blessed? Because of where it's planted near water. How is it blessed? Not because it works so hard and it's really, really good and it's got all this gift. No, it depends on the sun. It depends on the rain. It depends on the soil. There are external factors to that blessing. So don't think you in and of yourself can just create it by yourself, in yourself, for yourself. Blessing is attached to relationship and specifically to the Lord. Now, Jeremiah does a beautiful job because he contrasts it with this idea of cursed. Which really, the scripture kind of shows one way or the other. You're blessed when you trust in the Lord. Here's the imagery it gives for cursed. Check this out. And it's actually the verse before. Thus says the Lord, cursed, empowered to fail, is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. When you trust in other people, and that's full trust. Listen, nuance, you have to put trust in people. But you don't entrust your life to people. You don't put all of your resources and trust into people. Nor, notice this, makes flesh his strength himself. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's cursed if his heart turns away from the Lord. And here's the imagery they give you, not this tree, not this beauty we just saw. Here's the imagery. It says this, he is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to picture, like I could picture the lush, the beauty, but I'm going, a shrub? Like I think my house, it has like bushes and shrubs. I'm like, okay, well, that's not that bad. And kind of, this is kind of weird. And this is the hard part about not, knowing hebrew and culture because here's the picture that it's giving a shrub in the desert in fact the hebrew word is not shrub is not bush it's arar and arar is a play on the word curse which is arar a-r-u-r in hebrew arar is this plant that they've titled it curse because here's the deal look at the next picture imagine you're in a desert you're starving you need something, and you see this beautiful green plush plant, and you go and you grab it, you open it, and on the inside, literally, of this real tree in the desert, near the Dead Sea in Israel, you open it up, and it's cobwebs, and literally, there's poison in it. The Bedouins, even today, would dip their arrows in poison to kill their enemies or, 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 or food, animals, animals, Out of the result of this so this is the picture i love this so beautiful like if you just hear bush you're like that makes no sense but the picture is on the outside it looks really really good it's kind of like the tree of the knowledge of good needle versus the tree of life in the beginning on the outside choose one or the other it looks tempting good for eating right going to create knowledge, going to help sustain my life because I'm in a desert, I'm struggling, I need life. And you go and you open, it's dead on the inside. Jesus would use the metaphor as he talks to religious Pharisees, he calls them whitewashed tombs. Beautifully whitewashed, gorgeous, but on the inside is death. Even though on the outside, looks really good. This I love that the scripture gives this image of cursed. Because it has a semblance of blessed, but when you get close enough, when you actually taste it, when you open it, when you touch it, it will produce death. And isn't that the most accurate thing? This is relevant to us because we're talking about blessing. We're talking about relationship. And you know that, maybe you've gotten to a relationship, everything looked really good. But then it turned sour quickly because that person was not who you thought they were. And there's no greater curse than relational dysfunction. You can deal with your car breaking down. You can deal with maybe your job not working out, but relationships hurt the most. And this is why scripture says, listen, don't put your trust in others. Entrust yourself to others completely, nor... And here's the crazy part, in yourself. You say, now, why is that relevant? Our scripture passage today is verses three and four as Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Last week, G mentioned the poor in spirit is those that are bankrupt morally. They know I have nothing to offer. I'm literally coming, having to beg. If you've ever had a great amount of debt or have experienced bankruptcy, it's literally saying I don't have anything to transact anything with anymore. And I'm completely dependent on the charity of someone else or on you to wipe me clean so I can start over. I have nothing to offer. And this is how Jesus starts his sermon. Listen, don't trust in yourself don't trust in trust in others. That's a cursing. You're blessed when you're poor in spirit and you come to God with nothing. Because realistically, what do we have to bring to God? We have botched things up from the beginning. We blame God for things that actually started with us because he starts the world with blessing. He blesses this day, he blesses that day, he blesses the union, he blesses the things. As soon as man sinned, cursing came. What do we have to offer God? So Jesus says, just be honest, here's reality. Come to him morally bankrupt. And he says this, then you'll get entrance into the kingdom. The kingdom is theirs. Now, what is the kingdom? Because Jesus didn't come and he didn't preach, come, bow your head and make me your personal Lord and Savior. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but Jesus' main mantra was, listen, there's a new administration in town. Just like every four years, every eight years, we get a new president, but then they will have a new administration. Some people get fired and then we have different laws or different things and people are trying to say, this is what's important. This is what's morally right. This is how we're going to create laws. This is the new administration. And we all go, okay, what's this administration going to do? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, there's a new administration in town. I'm the king there is a king and there is a kingdom. Wherever the king's domain is, you have entrance, but here's how you get the ticket. Come in bankrupt. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in other people and you'll be blessed. That's the kingdom entrance. That's the administration that he offers. Here's, here's the problem. That goes so against our world system Okay, Steve Jobs, God bless his soul, I appreciate my iPad, my my iPhone, but I'm not going to him for philosophy or religion. It's not. Why? Here's one of his quotes. There is no reason not to follow your heart. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, type in follow your heart in Google, and you will get so many beautiful memes, quotes from people, people you love. And a beautiful thing you could like put on your, in your bathroom, you know, people that have those bathroom things, like just, I have to be reminded to follow my heart. What about Ralph Waldo Emerson, a great writer, says this, self-trust is the first secret of success. This is the view, the worldview that the world has. Now in one sense, they'll say, religion is dumb, it's a crutch, you don't need them, but obey these rules, which is religion? set of doctrine, a set of rules, a way to do life, a way to view life, how we should do things. You understand this. Don't be fooled. And the reason why we're mentioning this is because when Jesus comes on the scene to give his beautiful sermon, you have to understand how it is so different than what you're hearing every day and maybe what some of us have even believed. Here's the deal. There's a great book, highly, highly recommend it, called Faithfully Different. I've been reading lately by Natasha Crane. And she gives, she's, she got her MBA in marketing. She's a great apologist, does a great job. But she says, the message and marketing of our culture are these four things. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin God is the ultimate guess. And this gets perpetrated constantly everywhere you go. And and here's the deal. Understanding how these four core messages speak to our felt needs of self-authority is a major key to understanding how secularism is so influential in us and others. Because we want to believe it in our sin nature because we want to be self-sufficient. This is why it's simple to enter the kingdom, but it's not easy because of our own pride and what's reinforced culturally. Now, let's talk about this. She says, and I'm gonna give you some excerpts, feelings are the ultimate guide. That sounds like a law. And it is what you see in our culture. With these words, follow your heart, it knows the way. Even the beloved Beyonce in Houston will say, listen, great, talent, not going to listen to her philosophically or religiously. I'm sorry. She will say, follow your heart. She will say, I run my world. Does that sound like trusting in self? You are your own sufficient expert on reality and my life. The the hard part with some of these mentalities is it's hard to live consistently. I mean, if you drive on the highway for three seconds, right? And, and you're just like, I don't care. I'll do it my way, right? You're going to kill somebody. You're going to harm somebody. I'm going to follow my heart. My feelings are the ultimate guide. But the problem is you go to H-E-B, and you've heard me say this before, and I see Ryan Gosling magazine and six-pack abs, and I see a Snickers bar, and I go, I'm trying to follow my heart. You can tell where I've been following. But, I mean, I'm like... Which should I follow, which heart, which true me? Because I want six-pack abs, but I really want that Snickers bar. You're not you when you're hungry. That's right, I need to be me. (laughs) Do we think about the things that we're hearing and they're relevant to our flesh, our sinful nature that wants to fight and you still fight that even when you're a Christian. I'd say especially when you're a Christian, because you're now aware. And yet, which me is me? Which me am I going to feed? And can I really just, do you live that out consistently? You can't. You can't. This is why the Bible would say someone like that is double-minded, unstable in all their ways, just going with every wind. Oh, this. Yes. Oh, this. Yes, because I'm following my heart. And is it true you should follow your heart? Sure, to an extent. But also, you can't fully trust your heart. If I recall, Jesus comes in and says, you kind of need a new heart. And that's what he came to provide. How about this one? Happiness and I don't have time to go through all these like in, in, in the amount of time they deserve, but get the book. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Man, this is so true. The problem is happiness is subjective, and it is based on my feelings, right? She says this, in this view, we only, the only measure of life success is whether a person has been in touch with their feelings enough to know and pursue what would make them happiest, right? So we have our self-help books. We have our self-help authors that, like, like eat the fish and spit out the bones. There are good things in those. So we're not like that religious people that don't do this. Like, eat the fish. Okay, good. But, man, there's a lot of bad bones in some of that stuff. Completely, and more, more importantly, the complete trust in self. You can do it alone. Your happiness is your ultimate goal. So you have a rough patch or you have a bad marriage. I'm telling you, if happiness was the ultimate goal, and how I feel, which is subjective and change, I'm in deep trouble. I mean, Addison would have not made, actually, cadence. she's she's doing something, she would not have made it past six months, I'm telling you, because I was not happy getting up every night while she is colicky and screaming and freaking out. I had the, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm a pastor, right? I had the worst thoughts in the middle of the night with sleep deprivation, with a child screaming. I don't judge too many people in that arena. But listen, I was not happy. You know what would have been happy? To not deal with that and just leave? That would have made me happy. You can't live that out. Okay, you can. You shouldn't. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Whatever makes you happy. But that is so subjective. How about this one? Judging is the ultimate sin. This one's huge in our culture. Right, Because this idea, like, follow your heart, pursue your personal happiness. But, but because you're doing that individually, don't dare stop someone else from pursuing their heart and their personal happiness. That's the ultimate sin. Because you're stopping them. So, it doesn't matter if, like, the road is out behind you and you're going, hey, no, the road is out. You are judging them. Now, I will say this. The church, whatever your political party, all parties do it. I don't care where you are, everyone has done it, and we've judged wrongly. We've condemned people. We've done things in the wrong way, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater to say we can't tell anybody what to do. That is succumbing to the worldview and the pressure that judging is the ultimate sin. I'll give you an example. There's this thing in homeless services, specifically in downtown Seattle just recently. I was reading an article about this. And they have this thing called harm reduction policies, programs, and practices. And it's grounded in justice and human rights, which is great with the right understanding and filter. But if the idea is I can't judge anybody, I can't make anybody, I've got to focus on positive change and working with people without any kind of judgment, here's how that's playing out in Seattle, downtown Seattle right now. They have a a lot of homeless community and they're trying to help them because a lot of them are addicted to heroin. So they can't tell them it's wrong based on this philosophy because I can't judge you for doing that. I don't know your background or your culture, so I can't judge you. So they are literally giving out heroin pipes and helping them take heroin in the right way, in the right manner, and doing these kind of things in order to say, but we can't say anything because love means affirming whatever journey a person wants to be on because their happiness is the ultimate goal. Their feelings are the ultimate guide. The more we hear from culture that, listen to this, the more we hear from culture that judging someone else's choice is wrong, the more we feel affirmed that any criticism we receive must be ill-conceived. There are some people that have your best interest to say, hey, that's not good for you. It used to be parents. Okay, that's a whole other uh, message. Not, not every time someone says, that's not good, they're judging you. In fact, defining love, love is not do whatever you want. Love sometimes protects. Love says, oh, you got a fork and you're three years old and you've put it in the, in the socket, you know, this, that's bad. No, that's Love. Can it go to the other extreme? Yeah. And is that dangerous? Yeah. But we can't overcorrect with this mantra. Here's the last one. God is the ultimate guest. And this fits perfectly within this worldview and within these messages that you're hearing constantly. I mean, I was listening to a commercial a few months ago. And the commercial literally said, it had like this retired couple and they're drinking alcohol. And the commercial literally said, as they know, this older couple, they know the key to life is doing whatever you want. And I, in my family, they know, I will stop and say, is that true, Addison? We we do ongoing discipleship in my house. Is that true? Is that really right? The key to life? I mean, this dude looks like he's enjoying it, is do just whatever you want. Really live that out. We can't do it. It's not accurate. God is the ultimate guest. Here's the deal. This fits perfectly because... How does God relate in this message? Now, the amount of atheists is actually smaller than you think. There's a lot of agnostics that say, I don't know. But the amount of atheists, like there's no God, it doesn't matter, you know, because we do have so much evidence. I mean, alone, just creation alone. How does this work? Entropy alone, like things are degrading, so how can it progress? Something must have created. There are so, much, so many amazing things to say, okay, I'm having a hard time saying there is no God But don't you dare force God or religion on me because my feelings, my happiness, judging. And so this concept that you can have your God, but don't tell me your God is the only way because who can really know, right? Don't you feel that? You know that in culture. You hear that constantly. And it's consistent with the other beliefs because he's kind of this guess of cosmic truth. And, and, and this is just like so far beyond anything any of us can comprehend. And that's kind of the constant rhetoric that we hear. So all religions lead, have the same road. They all go to a different road. They're all the same, which is crazy. If you actually study the religion, it's crazy because they're so different. All religions are basically, this is kind of the concept, which thus means all religions then are equally false. So you can't put your trust in them. All you can do is put your trust in your feelings, your heart, yourself, your clan, your tribe. It's interesting because scripture does the opposite. And I said all that to say this as we dive back in, and I promise we only have about 10 minutes. Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, you come spiritually bankrupt. But then he says this in verse four, which is, Weird if you don't really think about it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You've never seen somebody cry and you just went, man, that person is so blessed. Oh my gosh. Hashtag blessed. Never. What is Jesus saying? Does God just like, oh, I love it when people cry. What is he saying? And how do these work together? Because this is a brilliant man, dare say the most brilliant man that's ever walked on the earth. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who have nothing to offer, nothing to bring, but come willingly, which is beautiful because it opens up the door, not just to the Jews and this nation, but to everyone who will. Blessed. But then blessed are those who mourn. In scripture, Paul would talk about this idea of sorrow. And he gives an idea of there's this worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow, a godly mourning. In worldly sorrow, you're you're mad or you're sad because you got caught. You're sad because of the consequences. Biblical sorrow, godly sorrow, is you're sad because you hurt the relationship. You hurt the person. So Jesus starts his sermon by saying this, listen, this is categorically categorically different way to think than everything you hear in commercials, in art, in everything, but this is the road of blessing. And he's talking to 5,000 plus people Probably closer to 10, 15,000 people that are coming because he has the greatest fish fry, greatest food, free food. It was an amazing day, right? Teaching, people are getting healed. People are demons are casting out. As G said last week, there were no hospitals. So he, they're just like coming to him. I need, I need this, I need this. And he's saying, that's fine. But here's the deal, you've got to come completely empty, not just need physically, spiritually, emotionally, in order to receive, and listen, that involves a sense of mourning, a sense of sorrow, Not just looking at it, well, it's their fault or it's because I I grew up like this or it's that, it's somebody else, the blame game, the entitlement. No, he's like, drop everything and take on not just that you're bankrupt, but that you are sorrowful for your relationship with God. God's here like a father waiting, like the prodigal sons come and we're the ones that have left This is the ultimate sin that Jesus came to conquer. This selfishness. You can go your own way. Go your own way. That's the sin. I got this. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. Or, like self-help, I'll add a little bit of God, a little bit of Hare Krishna, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And here I am. And God says, no, you come bankrupt and then you feel the weight of your own sin. And you know, the people that are the most loving understood how much they were forgiven. The people that recognize I have nothing to contribute to this. You are so much more amazed at the grace of God who would not only go, yes, wipe away your your sins, but take them. And he's speaking in future tense of a gospel because he says, you'll mourn, but you will be comforted. The mentor of C.S. Lewis, one of his mentors, G.K. Chesterton, and he was a great author, a brilliant writer. He was an Englishman in the early 1900s. And at one point in the 1900s, the Times of London did this series where they asked great writers of the period. They sent out this, and here's what they asked. What is the problem with the world today? Or what is the problem with the universe? There's so many things going on, world world wars, literally. Like, What what is the problem? So they're asking all these scholastic gentlemen and philosophers. And it comes to G.K. Chesterton, and here's what he wrote. The problem with the universe is me. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. The end. It's probably not what they were looking for. They wanted an article. <laughs> Something about G.K. where he understood as a, someone poor in spirit. Someone who knew how to mourn. Because, see, we, we don't mourn our losses as much as we medicate our losses. Fight or flight, and we fly. I don't want to deal with it. Because who can I take it to? Who can fix me? I've tried this and I've tried that. So I don't mourn, I medicate. G.K. Chesterton, as a poor in spirit, kingdom-driven, powerful theologian philosopher said, it's me. I, I can't just, it's me. How do I fix me? It's easy to look at everybody else. And Jesus says, come to me. As we sang earlier, all who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you comfort. But you come empty. You come ready. Here's these three points wrapped up to end. Kingdom entrance begins with number one, you recognizing your dependence. You are dependent on God. He created you with, I mean, to be connected like a plant to the soil and the water. You're not independent in and of yourself. You're not meant to live autonomous, just my thing. God in his grace says, no, I'm going to tether you back through my son. It's the grace of God. And when you get it because you've been alone and you've tried everything and you're at the bottom and you go, God, forgive me. And he says, all I've been waiting for is you to come. See, here's the deal. You're dealing with the most powerful being that ever lived, that spoke the world into his existence. And we know if you've ever been around someone powerful with a lot of money, they typically have people, a posse all around them, girls, guys. Why? Because they got money and they got power and God is the most powerful. And he doesn't say, yeah, follow me because I got all this. Because I don't know if I could trust you if you just want my stuff. It's the hard part about celebrities where I have compassion because they don't know who really loves them or who really just wants their stuff. And God in his beauty and grace comes in as the most powerful and we come to him because we just want his stuff. And he says, you ain't got nothing to offer me. And listen, that blows your mind because you don't and he still wants to be with you. What? That celebrity What doesn't want anything to do with you because you don't do anything for them. God says, you don't do anything for me, but I love you. And I'll embrace you. Come to me with nothing. Simple, but not easy. Then out of that dependence, we recognize that we express true sorrow in kingdom entrance for our sin and even the sins of others. Listen, we medicate because we want to numb ourselves, but also the church, the people of God can medicate themselves to where it's just like, eh, the world's going to hell. It doesn't matter. What can I say? And we've numbed ourselves instead of filtered and prayed and mourned. When's the last time we cried because of the culture, not just cried out in yelling, mourning. God, move the way you did in my life. Move in their life. Let them see who you are, how awesome you are, how you want to bring a blessing. And the last thing he says, then you'll receive comfort. And this is my last point. The comfort you get from God is a beautiful comfort. It's a promise. You're going to mourn, but I'm not going to leave you there because here's the deal. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. And the reason why he's a comforter is because he comes most powerfully when you're uncomfortable. And he comforts you with his spirit, with his love, with his relationship. And you feel blessed even if the world is on fire around you because you know God and he knows you. And that relationship is back tethered again. But here's what keeps us from that often is I talk to people and they'll say things like, I believe God has forgiven me. Sure, I believe in Jesus, but I can't forgive myself. Anybody ever felt that way? I just can't forgive myself. Here's the bad thing. I'm gonna ruin this for you because that is not a good comment. At the core of that, that's self-pity because here's what you're really saying. I'm just too bad for God's forgiveness, which in essence says this, I'm too proud and too angry that I have to rely on God's bleeding charity and I refuse to accept it. Because I'm self-made. Because I trust in myself. Never had anybody. Can't forgive myself. You have to allow and receive the comfort of God not from your pride, but from a place of humility, recognize I'm nothing, I mourn and I receive comfort. My grandfather on his deathbed, literally cursed my grandmother his whole life, died of emphysema and cancer, smoking his whole life, had a battle. All I remember about him is being angry and yelling to the point of coughing on on air. On his deathbed, my mom led him to Jesus and he hated God. And he looked up at her and he said, why didn't y'all tell me there's so much peace? And my mom almost slapped him, but he, you know, it was, it was not appropriate timing and because she's like, exactly. The kingdom isn't something you try. It's something you surrender to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are good you are gracious, that you are kind, that you are altogether different than the world, its ways, its philosophies, what it does. Lord, help us to recognize quickly the difference between your blessing and the world's blessing, Lord, by reframing our heart to relationships.